2: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, one of the NBN hosts. And today, it's a real pleasure to be joined by Christopher Zern, Professor of Philosophy at UMass Boston. Professor Zern's research specializes in social and political philosophy. He has written extensively for academic journals over the years, reflecting his broad interests in areas such as the politics of identity and status, recognition and redistribution, and on topics like populism and polarization, political progress, democratic constitutional change, as well as the discourse theory of law and political legitimacy, to name a few. Dr. Zern has written many chapters for edited collections, and he has two previously published monographs the 2007 Deliberative Democracy and the Institutions of Judicial Review, which shows why a normative theory of deliberative democratic constitutionalism yields the best understanding of the legitimacy of constitutional review. This was followed by his 2015 Axel Honneth, A Critical Theory of the Social, which provides an introduction and overview of Hannes' philosophy and is part of the Polity Press Key Contemporary Thinker series. Professor Zern has also co-edited a collection of original essays showcasing the work of younger political philosophers, the 2012 New Waves in Political Philosophy, and co-edited another collection of essays on the Philosophy of Recognition, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives. Today, though, Professor Zern joins us to discuss his latest book, Splitsville, USA, A Democratic Argument for Breaking Up the United States, published by Rutledge in 2023. Professor Zern, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today about your books your academic background, and research interests. It's a it's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much, Keith,
1: for inviting
2: me to be on the New Books Network. I'm excited. Thanks, Chris. And before we dive into your latest book, I want to spend a few minutes uh, providing listeners with a bit of context about you as a professor and political philosopher. You have been at UMass Boston, home of the beacons, What kind of courses will you be teaching this term to students, and what are some examples of what will be on your reading list? Yeah, I often teach intro courses, Introduction to Philosophy, and we
1: have a couple of different ways of doing that. This semester, I'm doing Moral and Social Problems, so I'll be just trying to walk through some of the hot-button issues of the day, looking at philosophical arguments For various kinds of positions and trying to get students used to thinking critically about the issues rather than the sort of, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. I know what team I'm on. Um, Let's start from the basics and try and put reasons behind some of those opinions and see if some of those opinions have support or not. Another course I'm teaching this semester is um, philosophy of law, an intermediate level class. And and there I'm just sort of um, working through one issue in philosophy of law in a, in a number of different ways as it comes up, which is what's the relationship between a legal system and a moral system? So some people think law is just law and you can have all kinds of evil law. And some people think a really evil law can't really be law at all because law pretends to justice. So we'll work through that. We start with uh, Sophocles' Antigone. And then we do a selection of classic readings from uh, Sir William Blackstone all the way up to um, contemporary issues in international law and how that same issue about the relationship between law and morality
2: works out in international law. So that's, that's what I'm teaching this semester, yeah. And uh, sounds exciting from the student level, for sure. Your dissertation uh, was titled Competence and Context, uh, Conceptions of the Self. In the critical social theories of Jurgen Habermas and Charles Taylor. Can you share a bit about how you have drawn on this work over your academic career and the importance of your relationship with the Kantian critical theorist Thomas McCarthy?
1: Yeah, so um, I haven't actually drawn on that dissertation. I really enjoyed doing it, but it was really a dissertation. A dissertation is sort of a masterwork on the way to getting your guild license so you can have your union card and be in academia. And it's it's it was a difficult dissertation, and I decided that I really couldn't do any kind of publishing with it. But I got interested in a set of thinkers, and that's a sort of tradition I came out of, Frankfurt School critical social theory tradition, and in particular, the work of Jürgen Habermas. And uh, a little bit later, while I was doing graduate work, also Axel Honnett and Charles Taylor and Michelle Foucault. And so that's the sort of tradition I came up in and was taught in. And so uh, I was lucky enough to go to Northwestern University uh, starting in, I think, 1990 or 91 or something like that. And at that point, Nancy Fraser was there and Tom McCarthy were there. And I ended up working with Tom, who was just, you know, I mean, you couldn't think of a better dissertation director. He was a mensch, a helpful person, extremely critical and um, stern when I needed sternness and criticality, and um, has been a mentor ever since. So, you know, Tom is sort of, I would say, the responsible, the most responsible person for bringing Habermas's uh, philosophical and sociological and social theoretical work to the English language. I mean, he was the translator of Habermas, as well as a very important um, commentator and interlocutor with him, and still is. Even Habermas at 93 is still working away in philosophy. And I know, having spoken to Tom a few months ago, that he's still in correspondence with uh, Habermas. So I, I I came up in an unbelievably fortunate graduate program at just the right time and um, learned my political philosophy and my social philosophy
2: at the feet of some of the best. Thanks for, for sharing that. It's a uh... Interesting um, about the age and how how people keep going. It sounds like Habermas and Chomsky ought to get together at some point. You spent a year as a Humboldt fellow in Frankfurt, where you were able to work on your first book. Uh, Again, uh, Deliberative Democracy and the Institutions of Judicial Review. Your host was the philosopher Axel Hanath. In the acknowledgments, you note the generous and supportive environment he helped provide. And, and I quote, in particular, his remarkable interactive demeanor has nourished my broader intellectual interests and shown me what authentic intersubjectivity means in practice. Can you share a bit about your time in Frankfurt and some of the backstory of your opportunity to interact with the likes of Honneth and Habermas?
1: Again, it goes back to graduate school. Uh, Professor Habermas came for a couple of different years and was a guest professor at Northwestern. I had the opportunity to both be a teaching assistant for him and, you know, basically sit in on every seminar he gave as well. Um, And also, Axel Honnett came a couple of different times to the States. And his book, um, The Struggle for Recognition, which is not his first book, but I would say it's the one that sort of established him in his particular Um, research agenda and outlook on things. And that book was being translated by a fellow graduate student and friend of mine, Joel Anderson. And so I got to read that early on and I, it really resonated with me because it had a lot to do with the themes I was actually working on in my dissertation. But I was already, you know, as they say, the only good dissertation is a done dissertation. And at some point, one has to stop doing research and just write the darn thing and get out of graduate school. I wasn't able to incorporate Honneth's work into my dissertation, but it was right up the alley of what I was working on. And so it became a sort of natural thing. And in fact, many of my early publications are precisely on uh, the sort of philosophy of recognition that Honnett um, was developing and in concert with and in contest with um, other people. So that was a lot of, that was sort of one stream of my work. And the other stream of my work was very influenced by a book uh, that Habermas wrote on law and democracy that came out in English translation in the 90s. And I was very influenced by that. And so I got much more interested in deliberative democracy. And in particular, I got interested and still am interested in what are the basic institutions by which we do politics? How do those basic institutions change things? Um, So I'm I'm interested in those kinds of questions, I I think, really courtesy of Habermas, because I didn't think I was interested in those questions when I went into graduate school and got interested in them then.
2: That's interesting. And you're referring to uh, between facts and norms. Do you uh, do do you assign that uh, or I have taught
1: that? that. So I was um, at University of Kentucky for 10 years and that has a graduate program. And so I would regularly teach graduate seminars doing either a survey of Habermas or, you know, between facts and norms and other work in deliberative democracy. I assign small parts of that to some of my upper level uh, work at UMass Boston. One of my favorite courses is just on, I think it's called Ideas of Constitutional Democracy. And so there it's a sort of theoretical plus a little bit of comparative work that I ask the students to do to actually look at constitutional arrangements in other countries, um, and it just trying to broaden their horizon some. And so I do read, I have some readings from Habermas in that section, as well as a lot of other stuff.
2: Yeah. Sure, good stuff.
1: It's not yeah. easy reading, I should say. It's it's German, <laughs> and it, it has a kind of style that's forbidding to students and becoming ever more so.
2: <laughs> well, um, William Reg, I think, uh, did the translation for that, but even in English, it's, it's a tome, to, uh, yeah,
1: Bill did a fantastic job with that. Um, it was really a labor of love, and he's he's another Northwestern student of Tom McCarthy's, and he really did a tremendous job. It's probably, I think, the best translated of at least Habermas's big books. Um, I know he's working assiduously on the new enormous two-volume tome on religion and philosophy that Habermas published a
2: few years ago. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. Well, well your Deliberative Democracy and the Institutions of Judicial Review was published in 2007. You draw on it in the court chapters of your latest book, Splitsville, USA, which was written for a different audience and and purpose. Uh, Can you talk to us a bit about your first book and the significance of your argument's implications?
1: Yeah. So that book is really about a kind of old chestnut in political philosophy, which is why can five out of nine unaccountable, unelected justices tell democratic actors that they can't have what they want? I mean, that's one way of putting it. And I really thought that, and I still think that the way of thinking in a particular theory of democracy called deliberative democracy gave a different way of understanding that problem. Uh, And I don't want to go too deeply into it, but I was interested in now approaching that old chestnut with these new theoretical tools and showing that the new theoretical tools were actually much more helpful for understanding that. And so, again, it was a problem in basically institutional design, right? I mean, I could ask a similar question about the Federal Reserve. I didn't because I'm interested in in law and democracy and constitutionalism. And I think that there is a really interesting set of complicated questions about the relationship between constitutionalism and democracy that we put together and kind of don't think about quite as much. We just say, oh, constitutional democracy. There's actually a lot built into that. And so that book was a much more academic book that tried to think about those institutions. And I think if there's one thing that connects that book from 2007 with Splitsville, it's that I'm still really interested in how constitutions change. Who changes the constitution? How do we change the constitution? Can we change constitutions? And of course, I'm coming from an American perspective, especially in Splitsville, where we have... Probably the hardest constitution to change in the world of constitutional democracies. It's a built-in problem to our political institutions. It's really, really hard to change the United States Constitution. And um, so I'm interested in that. And of course, one way that the Constitution actually does get changed in the United States is by the judiciary, by the Supreme Court in particular. And so that's what my first book was about. And now I'm trying to think about other ways to change the Constitution.
2: You shared with us some of your Frankfurt experience as a humble fellow, and the and the privilege it afforded you as a young scholar to interact uh, with philosopher and and critical social theorists, uh, Axel Honneth. You you have written many uh, academic journal articles, chapters, books, and been part of book projects ever since, uh, as noted earlier. But but I want to ask you to share your thoughts about two Honneth-related efforts in particular. The first is the introduction you wrote for your co-edited monograph, The Philosophy of Recognition, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives, where you lay the groundwork for the chapters which follows, which include contributions by Nancy Fraser and Axel Honneth, well after their own notable exchange in redistribution or recognition of philosophical exchange. Uh, The second is your chapter in the edited collection, Axel Honneth, Critical Essays, with a reply by Axel Honneth, which comes after both of the works just mentioned. Your contribution, Chapter 12, Social Pathologies as Second-Order Disorders, is the point, though and an interesting title. Can you share some of your aim in that chapter by prefacing it with some background for the uninitiated who may be unfamiliar with the philosophy of recognition?
1: Yeah, so I think that um, Axel Honneth is the sort of person, along with some other people, who have really put the idea of recognition on the map, even if their claim is that recognition is basically the way in which we interact with others and get uptake from others is actually really, really important for who we are, who we want to become, and how we associate together. So if you're doing a broader thing about social theory and what society looks like, I mean, Hannah's story is that society is fundamentally structured by these interaction relationships and the kinds of respect we get or disrespect we get. And that, in fact, the disrespect part, the negative recognition where we're misrecognized or unrecognized or poorly categorized by our interlocutors is actually the kind of fuel for social movements. And I think that this is, you know, a very powerful theory if you're thinking especially in the last 60 years, let's say, of social movements in the Western world. I mean, we see again and again and again new social movements arising precisely when people feel systematically disrespected in some way or other. If it's the Me Too movement, if it's Black Lives Matter, the, uh, if even if it's um, Occupy Wall Street, all of these are different social movements that arise precisely from distorted or pathological, let's say, recognition relationships They become the kind of fuel for social movements. And that's not an accident, says Hannah, because who we are so fundamentally, our identity, our social standing, our understanding of ourselves is tied up with how we interact with others and how in- others interact with us. It's not just some accidental thing. It's actually really fundamental to who we are and how we understand ourselves as individuals, we can't separate that from intersubjectivity, that is other subjects interacting with us. So there's that fancy word that is um, an academic word, intersubjectivity. But I mean, it's really this idea that we're not little monads bumping around into each other like billiard balls. Rather, we're constituted and understand ourselves through our interactions with others. And we can get a kind of a moral grammar of that kind of interaction, and work out what's right and wrong with our social relations. And I think that's the sort of Honneth picture, in a nutshell, in a simplistic uh, terms, that puts together moral theory with social theory, with a theory of how societies change and adapt and get better over time.
2: Nice. Thanks for for sharing that. Do do you feel like the Fraser-Honneth Philosophical exchange uh still resonates for you today
1: uh it's hard to say it doesn't. I mean um there's a way in which their actual exchange was a little bit of talking past each other, and some of us you know underworkers under them have tried to get them to talk more to each other and I think we've you know we've gotten along, but I mean there are some fundamental issues that they raise, and that really is is there a different logic? to recognition and misrecognition than there is to um, what Nancy Fraser calls maldistribution. That is economic inequality. Is economic inequality or class relations really fundamentally different from identity, social relations that are based on interpretations of who other people are? And so I think that that's a fundamental issue between the two of them. And they really still have different outlooks. And I think it's very helpful for students and us to think OK, there are good sides and bad sides to both of these kinds of ways of looking at things. And I think a lot of my underworking stuff in that debate is precisely saying, well, there's a point over there you missed and there's a point over here you missed. And there are some things you have to make some really basic social theoretical decisions about.
2: Do, do you feel like that, uh, as you characterized did at the beginning, talking past each other, do, do you feel like that's the case? Do people feel or do you feel uh, that that's also the case with, say, Rawls Habermas or Rawls Sandel, that uh, kind of thing?
1: Well, certainly the Rawls Sandel debate about sort of communitarianism, and liberalism did have a fair amount of talking past each other. But I think that also you can see in a sort of longer tale that a lot of those issues got subtly reformed some of the ways in which Rawls was understood and suddenly reformed some of the ways in which communitarianism went forward. Are they still talking past each other that is the Fraserites and the Hundites? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, Axel Hundt is deeply convinced that you can understand economic and class relations in recognitional terms. And Fraser, frankly, uh, in the tradition of Max Weber, thinks that this is just a different uh, a different ordering of society, that there are different orderings knocking up against one another. And these things come out in politics all the time, right? I mean, Uh, In American politics, in just an ordinary way, right? I mean, what was uh, Clinton's advisor, Bill Clinton, when he was president, his advisor kept saying, "Um, it's the economy, stupid, right? It's all about the economy. And people say, no, 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 it's all about identity resentments. And we're fighting that out in each of our political parties in the United States, on the Democratic side and on the Republican side right now, right? Should the Republican Party be about deregulating business? Or should it be about prosecuting certain kinds of resentments of coastal elites? That Mm -hmm. looks like a kind of class versus identity conflict. And the same in the Democratic Party. Should we be worried about, you know, making sure that everybody's identity is taken into account and is given uh, appropriate respect and recognition? Or should we be concerned about making sure manufacturing comes back to the United States? Right? I mean... In both parties, you have that kind of a split. So there's a nice way in which the Frasier-Hanna debate at a very high level really articulates something that's pretty fundamental
2: with our everyday politics. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. I was thinking Rawls-Habermas also had a we, I think on
1: the Rawls-Habermas thing, you couldn't do better right now. Um, uh, Gordon Finlayson has a really nice book on the Rawls-Habermas debate that I think is worth reading for anybody who's interested in it. I think that Rawls and Habermas, at the end of the day, their dispute is, as Habermas characterized it, a family dispute. That is, they're in the same broad framework of thinkers. Habermas has a more democratic outlook and Rawls has a more classical liberal rights first outlook. I mean, I just, you know, there's a difference there, but there's a family relationship because they're both coming at it from liberal constitutional democracy and trying to understand why that's a legitimate form of government, and perhaps the only legitimate form of government. What exactly that means, they disagree about a little bit. But it's a family dispute, and not a nasty family dispute, that is, a, a, you know, one of those, you
2: say potato, I say potato disputes. That's a that's a good way to put it. So thanks, Chris, for uh, sharing some of your earlier scholarship, some themes, uh, intentions, and thoughts. Let's move on and look at your your latest book. From what I understand. You finished it in the summer of 2022. And again, yeah. it's, it's called Splitsville, USA, a democratic argument for breaking up the United States. Can you share with us how you opened that book and its, its relation to the presidential debates of 2016 and, and how that was kind of a, an igniting moment for you?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, as we talked about before, my academic work has been on, in part, constitutional democracy. And I always just assumed as an American citizen that we had a consolidated constitutional democracy. Yeah, it had faults. I had all kinds of, you know, beefs around the edges or something like that. But in terms of just A basic democracy where you have elections that choose representatives, that was never in question. And so my work before was at a fancy high-level theory of democracy that's differentiating from other ones. And, you know, I didn't really take the basic mechanics very seriously. And then one of the two major candidates for the presidential election, before the presidential election, said, basically... I'll tell you after if I win, I'll pay attention to the elections. And if I lose, I won't pay attention to the polls. If I win, I'll pay attention to the polls. And if I lose, I won't pay any attention to the elections. In other words, one of the major two candidates for president of the United States was saying, I feel free to disregard the outcome of elections. Now, There's all kinds of wackos in America. Many of them get a microphone, many loudmouths. They say crazy things. What struck me in 2016 was that much of American public just shrugged. They said, oh, well, there he goes again, which to me was a five alarm fire. Like, (laughs) that's the thing. If if you have somebody who's running for a democratic election who says, you know, I don't really care about democracy and whatever the elections are, I'm just going to do what I want to do. You don't elect that person or you don't make them a serious candidate. And the rest of the country would be like, oh my gosh, something major is happening. But the rest of the country just kind of shrugged. And that was the aha moment for me when the rest of the country kind of just said, oh yeah, there he goes again. And I thought something is seriously amiss in our democracy. We're not really as committed to democracy as we say we are. We say we are the originators of constitutional democracy in the world. But apparently we are not So I got worried about that. And that's when I started thinking about this notion of whether we're really committed to obeying the outcomes of elections, because even, you know, previous presidential candidates had stuff that they didn't like in the elections. But they said at the end of the day, I'm going to pay attention to the results. And this one said he wouldn't. And he said it again in 2020. And that struck me as very interesting. That that was a, a fundamental shift in how I was thinking about American democracy. And instead of it being just a normal feature of the environment that we can take for granted, I thought we can no longer take for granted free and fair elections actually being obeyed. And that's what got me worried. And I, when I started to do more and more research and thinking about it, it looked like actually we are in real danger of losing that democratic pre-commitment. And then I think the second step is simply to think. That's not an accident. There are reasons for that. And what are the reasons for that? And that's where the book uh, gets going. I hope that's at least an an opening to the the way in which I was like, oh my gosh, things are much different in my country than I just presupposed before.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Yeah, no, that's uh, it's interesting, and I've mentioned your book to uh, colleagues and and start with whether rightly or wrongly, but but start with the idea that your main premise, you're starting from this idea of the lack of the democratic pre-commitment and maybe reading too much into it. But you, in your first book, at one point, you're analyzing Samuel Freeman's work. And one of your subtitles is something to the effect of um, democratic pre-commitment As popular sovereignty. And I wanted to ask you about that, whether that moves forward to today for your thinking.
1: Well, I'm sure I get the language of pre commitment from Samuel Freeman. And I thank you for pointing that out because I think until you just mentioned it just now, I actually hadn't consciously put those things together. But there was a debate in the 90s to try and understand judicial review as a kind of Ulysses lashing himself to the mast. You'll remember that as um, the, uh, the Argo is sailing through Scylla and Charybdis, which are two very sexy things that are going to destroy you, Ulysses really wants to sing songs, but he also doesn't want to crash on the rocks. So he tells his crew to tie him to the mast and for them to put all kinds of, you know, stuffing in their ears and blindfolds on. And he gets to listen to it and look at it. Um, but whatever he says, they're not supposed to pay any attention to the orders he gives. So it's sort of like, I'm just about to be drunk. So why don't you you know, get me through Scylla and Crybdis? So Samuel Freeman thinks that uh, judicial review is sort of like that. It's a sort of insurance policy that we as the Democratic people give to ourselves when we get too drunk um, on some kind of idea. I don't particularly buy that theory, but it's a very powerful theory from both Freeman and Steve Macedo. Who both um, developed versions of that, that sort of pre-commitment theory. So I think I got that pre-commitment idea absolutely from there. But when you think about it, I mean, it's a strange thing. I mean, democracy is an amazing accomplishment because it gets people into power who want to be into power, and it gets them to commit to stepping out of power when they lose. Yeah, And that's not actually a normal thing for people who really want to have political power to do. In the history of the world, people in political power like to stay in political power. And somehow we've organized a system through institutions and through culture that has enabled people to adopt the pre to being like, yep, if I lose, I'm not going to stay in power. And that's an amazing achievement. And if especially political elites are not committed to that, then you lose democracy. So I don't think the democratic pre-commitment is the most important thing about democracy, but it's a necessary condition. Just like I don't think that oxygen is the most important thing about humans, but if you don't have oxygen, you die. And I think the democratic pre-commitment is one of those necessary conditions that you can't have electoral democracy unless people, and especially political elites, are significantly committed to obeying the outcomes of elections, even when they don't like them. That's a remarkable achievement. And I think we're also in danger of losing that remarkable achievement.
2: That's an interesting way to put it. It's, uh, It's nice, especially in light of that term democratic backsliding and where we see it in Europe. And now it sounds like you and some other authors are basically saying, hey, we need to wake up to the fact that we're experiencing a version of the same thing. Absolutely. I think this part of my sort of
1: diagnosis of the problem is not particularly unique or original. In fact, I'm really piggybacking on the work of a lot of amazing scholars um, who share many of the same worries. The worry is that the way our politics is set up right now is one that favors people who undermine the democratic pre-commitment. That's at least my shtick on it. But I mean, there's different ways of putting this, but I think Recep Tayyip Erdogan from Turkey puts it really nicely, all right? He is actually one of these people who's quite responsible for democratic backsliding. He came in as a democratic reformer, and now it's quite clear he's an autocrat using every lever he can to stay in power no matter what people kind of do in elections. And he says, you know, he didn't say, you know, I think the quote is, democracy is a streetcar you ride to your destination and then you get off. So my question is, why is that backsliding happening? And I guess then my story is my particular diagnosis is that our institutions actually incentivize politicians to get and keep power without majority or supermajority support, or put it another way, to have only minority support and yet be able to retain the levers of power. So our institutions create the incentives for, as it were, democratic backsliders to get into office and continue democratic backsliding. One of the things they continue to do is to undermine their commitment to democracy itself. So they undermine the democratic pre-commitment. Not only that, but that's one of the things um, they do. And so then that's where the institutional story, Keith, comes in, where I start talking about the actual institutions of American democracy, especially at the federal level and how they actually reward people for getting and maintaining and keeping power, even when they don't have majority support. And those are the sort of pathologies of our institutions, which are now coming home to roost. It's true. It's happening in other places. I think it happens in different ways. At one point, I thought about writing this book in a more general philosophical way, but I couldn't find the right resonances between all the different examples of backsliding. Each nation has its own story. And this is a story about the United
2: States. You do lay out uh, some of the structural issues uh, that that you find with the United States. Can you lay out some of those for us? What What is it that bothers you about our system as as it exists now?
1: basically kind of like five or six different basic features of our constitutional architecture. Some of them are really well known. You know, the Senate is vastly disproportional to um, the population. So even if you have a 50-50 split in the Senate, you're not going to have a 50-50 split of the people who voted for those senators. So because we have such a large disparity, I think 68 or 70 times between the smallest states and the largest states. You know, Wyoming and Vermont and California are somewhere in the 68, 63 times as small as California. You get two senators in California and you get two senators in Vermont, and they're just not um, proportional. But another way to think about it that's a little bit more powerful for me, and this will go for all of these features, is that when you think that there's a, a major disproportion between the represented people and the representatives, when there's a major numerical disproportion, it actually gives smaller, what are often called in political science, veto players much more power. So if you think about the Senate, and we know the filibuster rule, you need 60, 60 senators to pass any kind of legislation. Well, if you do the numbers, it turns out, I think if I'm remembering my numbers correctly, that 18% senators representing 18% of the population can veto the legislative priorities of the other 82%. So even though it's a 60-40 split, because of the smallness of states, only 18% of the population, at least in theory, can veto what 82% of the population wants. So when you get these kinds of disproportions between who's represented and who they're represented by, like you get in the Senate, You get the possibility for people to get what they want by simply thwarting anything that the supermajority wants, because 82% is a huge supermajority in any country, and yet 18% can thwart them. Okay, so the Senate is disproportional. Uh, The House is actually fairly disproportional, and that's a result of a couple of things, namely that state legislatures divide up the representative districts in their uh, respective states, and some of them are quite good at really nasty gerrymandering, right? So um, gerrymandering has a number of different effects, one of which is simply to make even representation in the more representative legislative chamber, the House of Representatives, um, much more disproportionate than it would be if actually representatives were representing the actual electorate. Um, Then you've got the question about that actually, why are state politicians who are elected in already gerrymandered districts have so much power over the actual federal electoral system? Obviously, the judiciary is a problem, right? Uh, Go back to the Senate filibuster rule. 18% of the senators representing a mere 18% of the country can veto any Supreme Court nominee they don't like. That means that you're going to get a stacked judiciary. And of course, the judiciary is not accountable. So not only are they not elected on the front end, they're not representative, but they're also not accountable because they have jobs for life. Incidentally, that's completely an American anomaly.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Other no,
1: constitutional democracies have term limits, basically, or set terms for um, constitutional court judges. The idea that you get a judgeship for life at you know fifty-two or forty-eight or fifty-four for the next thirty or forty years is 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 really um, an outlier among constitutional democracies. Okay, so you have the judiciary problem, and then you have really the uh, the problem that's obvious. That sorry, I didn't mention the electoral college. We all know that. In the last six elections, two of them have been decided where the winner of the election, courtesy of the Electoral College, is not actually the winner of the popular vote. They got less votes, but they got the presidency. And that disproportionality has to do, again, with the disproportionality between small states and large states that's baked into the formula for the Electoral College. And then the last thing is just how darn hard it is to change the Constitution. Right um i said that only political representatives representing only 18% of the population can veto legislation it turns out that for constitutional amendments 4.4% representatives representing only 4.4% of the entire american electorate can veto any proposed amendment which means that 95% potentially of the american people can't change the constitution even if they have 95% that's yeah, remarkable
2: now yeah, it is. That's
1: and- remarkable. And it gives a very strong incentive for people to use those powers to get what they want and to maintain power, even with the kind of minority power they have, because they have an awful lot of minority power.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that the uh, support of your argument is that the ERA amendments, it's still – unratified. Also, the balanced budget amendment,
1: Keith, both of those were supported by super majorities for long periods of time, and neither of them had a chance in heck of getting, well, the ERA was close, I should say. The ERA was close. The balanced budget amendment, I mean, I'm not a fan. I mean, I don't care what the substance is. I'm not a fan of the balanced budget amendment, but you know, given the numbers that were supportive of it, it really should have had a much better chance, and it never even got out of the proposal stage.
2: Well, you mentioned, you know, the gerrymandering, and I share with you that this American Life episode that talked yes. a little bit about the Ohio uh, redistricting commission, and it's yeah. just, uh, it's an amazing story in and of itself about how the maps were drawn. And the only, and one of the reasons I brought it up was because, as part of your book, as you work your way through, you. Uh, you were talking uh, there, uh, we were talking about the structural defects, you were really talking about diagnosis. But then you move on to prescription. And yep. and then you also provide some alternatives. And I think by chapter five, hey, you're mapping this out, you're giving us some possibilities for how the country could look if in fact, we were to have a some sort of disillusion. It's probably a good time to talk a little bit about the difference between civil war secession and yep. disillusion. What's going on there? Yeah,
1: so um, secession is um, a really freighted word in the American context. And of course, that has to do with the Civil War. It's helpful, however, to remember that what we call the American Revolution was actually also a secessionary war. The colonists fought to unilaterally secede from the empire of Great Britain. And they won that. And so we call it the American Revolution, but it's really the American secession from Great Britain, right? And then we had the Civil War and the Confederate States of America fought to secede unilaterally. And here the unilateral is important, right? To say, we're going to get rid of you. We're going to separate off from you no matter what you say. And, of course, Lincoln said, uh, no, I think actually we're going to go to war. And so we had the American Civil War, and that was a secessionary war. And it's true that throughout, especially the history of nation-state formation and um, separation and agglomeration and dispersal that you get over the last three or 400 years of nation-states being around, a lot of secessions are fought through civil wars. However, a lot of secessions are simply peacefully negotiated. They're not unilateral. They're at least bilateral. That is to say, the different parties say, yes, you can go your separate ways. So there are lots of these. I mean, Iceland from Denmark. I go through a lot of these. And there are a lot of other kinds of political divorces that are negotiated. So we have violent ones and we have nonviolent ones. So secession is when one part breaks off from a larger part. Dissolution is when the large part completely disappears as an entity, and you get new smaller parts usually in the new one. So, the most famous example of a dissolution is, of course, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So, between 1989 and basically it's a completed process by the end of 1991, you get one nation, the USSR, which separates into 15 new nation states. And that's a dissolution. So a secession is just when one part breaks off from another, and a dissolution is when that nation state disappears and new nation states appear in its place. So what I'm arguing for, back to the book, is that we ought to dissolve the United States. We, the single United States, ought to negotiate our way to a political divorce so that we break up into two or three or five, actually it's five that I favor, new nation states. And that would be a dissolution, it wouldn't be a secession because it's not one part breaking off from the other, but it'd also be a negotiated nonviolent dissolution, a lot like a divorce, right? A divorce is a situation where people agree to no longer agree, (laughs) to no longer try and consociate together. And so what I'm arguing is that we ought to split up in order to save democracy. So that's the sort of thrust of my prescription. So I prescribe a politically negotiated divorce into new nation states. That's the banner idea, I suppose, of the of the book.
2: Sure. It's a good analogy, uh, this idea of disillusion due to uh, irreconcilable um, differences. There you go. It, th- that's it. So what's the pushback on that, then, that, that, <laughs> that there, uh, Here's two po- possible problems. And, and I think you, you, uh, you do deal with this. Um, You've got and, and you bring her up it's um a uh, Barbara Water or Walter Walter yeah uh, talks about the predatory nature of the Republican Party and, and I think you combine that with our high propensity for gun ownership uh, I, again I, I don't think that necessarily, you know translates into political violence but certainly the potentials there how how do you kind of work around that this factionalism and and speaking of the factionalism going back to the gerrymandering issue in the ohio uh, redistricting situation that was a clear kind of railroading or kind of taking advantage of the process where the, the republicans that were in charge of that redistricting commission, it was five Republicans and there was two Democrats on that commission. They pretty much kind of manipulated the whole situation so that the map redrawing process couldn't really move forward. There wasn't really a good faith effort there. And my point being that, hey, that was, there was a predatory or there was a us versus them kind of mentality going on there. And, and then combining that with the gun ownership thing concerns me a little bit uh, in terms of people people disagreeing about borders and, and all that kind of stuff. Right.
1: So let me try and just speak to it's a couple of different issues here. Um, one is about violence and the other is about how you set new rules. So let me take the violence issue first. You mentioned Barbara Walter, and she wrote a terrific book, which I really highly recommend, called, I believe it's How Civil Wars Start, and I think it has some more subtitle there. She is a comparativist. She's looked at big data from different countries all over the world, basically since World War II, and tried to, she and a whole bunch of researchers who were in a a government-funded research group, tried to isolate which factors actually are positive um indicators are highly correlated with the incidence and maintenance of civil violence of various kinds. And um, there's a longer story here, but the most interesting part is there's really only two major causal factors that they were able to identify. They started with a list of 65 or 75 different possible variables, and you can fill in all, all the things you think of why people go to civil war. And it's basically only twofold. One If a country is changing from either a stable democracy or a stable autocracy to some kind of a mixed regime in the middle, where it looks a little funny, it's called an anocracy. That's what the political scientists call it. But you can just think of it as not a tyranny and not a democracy either. It's somewhere in the middle. Turkey's a good example, for instance, of an anocracy. If a country is moving from one of the two poles into this unstable region, the possibility of civil war goes up a great deal. The second factor is what they call factionalization. And this is when people think that the organization of conflict is a zero-sum game. Whereas if my team wins, your team has to lose. If your team wins, I automatically lose and my faction has a very strong identity component, that is a religious identity, a racial identity, an ethnic identity, a linguistic identity, something like that, or some combination of those. If you get factionalization plus anocracy, then you have a very much higher likelihood of civil violence leading into civil war. And Barbara Walters' um, story in that book is basically that the United States is getting to be more and more a factionalized anocracy. That is, we're seeing political conflict, not in ordinary political conflict, like I want to drive on the right side of the road and you want to drive on the left side of the road and we need to figure out which side of the road we're going to go. And so we're going to do our political trading and we're going to figure out a solution and then we're going to abide by it. That's ordinary political conflict, but they see it rather as existential terms. If you win, I lose and I'm going to be killed by it. That's what I mean by existential, right? If It's somehow really fundamental to who I am, and maybe it's going to exterminate me in some sense if you win. If you see political conflict like that, which I think we see a little bit more in the United States, and if your country is backsliding from democracy to something weird in the middle, which I think we are, you have a heightened probability for violence. So back to the violence issue. Wait a minute, you ask, Zern, you want us to split up and everybody's got guns. It's going to be a violent bloodbath. And the first thing I want to say is we need to compare the baseline. We already have a lot of not just violence, but politically specific violence. The headline case of that of course is the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. That was deliberately political violence by people who said that, you know, the elections didn't come out the right way. And of course, there's a lot of other political violence that's uh, that's more, in some sense, terroristic, right? So I think we're on a trajectory not for big armies fighting each other's in the battle in the battlefields of Antietam, right? That's not where we're going. But we are in- increasingly going to see more and more political violence. Yes, the most of the Proud Boys are getting locked up, but other groups will. Take their place and more will, and they will, that violence will be politically oriented. So, Barb, one lesson from Barbara Walters' book is that actually we're already on a trajectory in our current status quo trajectory of increased political violence. Now, if we follow my sort of thing, I'm actually proposing that we use our animosity towards each other to go to political divorce. So, that instead of trying to get all along and we all agree with each other about what's wrong with democracy and we all fix it together, um, like the Ohio legislature did in that nice This American Life um, thing. Sorry, I'm being ironic. They didn't at all. Instead of trying to all agree about what the right problems are and what the right solutions are, we should use our animosity just to get the divorce decree. Just get the divorce decree, and then we can rebuild institutions that look a lot like ours, but without some of the subtle mistakes that we've made. Now, that route that I'm recommending is a conflict route. And a conflict route probably will mean some increased violence in the sh- short term. I don't think we're on the way at all to large massed armies fighting each other. I, I, I really just don't see how anybody in the US Army or the US Navy is suddenly going to you know fight for some other side That's just, you know, that's one of the most professional, well-regulated, constitutionally ordered uh, institutions in our entire society. I don't see that the military is going to be going along with some kind of mass violence, mass organized, two militaries fighting each other out. We might have some increased violence in the short term, but what are the main causal factors for political violence? Backsliding away from democracy and factionalization. If we can get to starting to talk about divorce, it no longer seems hopeless for people to engage in politics. If we can say, look, you in the Northeast go your way and we in the West will go our way. You in the Southeast will go your way and we in the West will go our way, right? Texas will go its way and Ohio will go its way. If we can start getting that, there's less incentive for political violence. So actually, weirdly paradoxically, it might seem to an objector to my thing. I actually think that Splitsville, the attempt to split up the United States, will actually be a somewhat of a pressure relief valve in the short term. And it's for sure in the long term, it should deal with the two main problems we have that lead to the increased propensity for civil violence, backsliding to anocracy and factionalization, because people hopefully will have institutions where they can process their disagreements productively.
2: But in addition to that, right, and you write about this, there's some r- real need for rule changes. Uh, the The rules of the game uh, have to be renegotiated. Is, yes. is that before or after the divorce? Do you do that? After the divorce, then
1: it's after the divorce. That's exactly right. So I can imagine, let's say that there's five nations. I can imagine a more traditionalist nation simply saying, we're going to paste and copy and paste the United States Constitution exactly as it was originally written, whatever that means. I guess that also means with the amendments, but, you know, keeping in the stuff about the fugitive slave clause and stuff like that, and the three fifths clause, I guess, I don't know. But you could see them just saying, we're just doing America truly authentically right? Other nations will take that opportunity to say, yeah, let's do something a lot like the American Constitution. But you know what? The American Constitution was written by people who were doing it for the first time. We now have 240 years of evidence about what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of these rule things are kind of subtle, yeah? So we're not going to do things like give elected representatives the power to draw their own political districts. That's just something you shouldn't do. We're not going to do that. I could see one nation doing that because they would just cut and paste the exact American Constitution. I could see some other ones not doing that, right? And now once you, that would be exactly as you said, post-divorce decree, because all the divorce decree says is, this is where the borders are and we're splitting up the assets this way. Right. Then there would have to be a process of new constitution writing or at least new constitution adapting, even if you're just cutting and pasting the old one. You got to say, yes, we are hereby affirmatively, we, the people of this new nation of, let's say, the Southeast, are hereby affirmatively putting our thumbprint on the old constitution. And now we've got the new constitution. So it seems to me that the divorce decree, after the divorce decree, gives you a perfect opportunity. To do what I call the constitutional reboots. And they don't have to be that extensive, but they probably have to do things like protect against any representative chamber where you have 68 to one differential in representation. It'd probably do stuff like do away with the electoral college. It's not doing any work. States aren't represented in the electoral college. I mean, we gave away that when we passed direct election of the senators, and you know, it's not giving any greater representation. We do it like Every constitutional democracy does. If you have an elected president rather than a prime minister, it's popular vote. So some things would be just easy little changes that would get us out of these deep sort of ratchets we're stuck under. We're stuck under a one way ratchet that's made it possible, but we don't have the ability to get out of it, just like the Ohio Republicans, uh, sorry, the Ohio Democrats weren't able to overcome the numerical disproportion that gerrymandering had delivered to the Republicans when the Republicans were trying to rewrite the rules. Actually, what they did is they just wrote the same rules again. That was the nice thing in the episode. Five times, despite the court saying that's unconstitutional, they just said, "Okay, but we're doing it again.
2: Yeah, Uh, the uh, the audacity, as I I think one of the uh, people interviewed described it, is – it's just amazing. It's something that people should listen to, I think. Um, Sorry, I just plugged David Pepper's
1: book, Politician from Ohio, but his book is really terrific on how that, you know, really wonky, boring stuff about districting actually makes a big difference.
2: Yeah. No, you, and you probably just said this Laboratories of Autocracy. Right. Correct. Ira Glass opens the episode either mentioning him or talking yeah. to him. Yeah. Correct. Uh, yeah. So good, good point there. But you also, I think, I don't know if you you reference Hirschman and, or not, but, but there's this kind of exit voice and loyalty moment after the breakup or after the divorce, people in the different nations need to be able to, to move on or, or change nations. Well, why is that a key provision in, in your thinking?
1: Yeah, that's I'm really glad you brought that up, because I tried to write this book in a way that the commitments you'd have to take on in order to buy my argument are very minimal. All you got to be sort of committed to is representative democracy. If you're committed to basic, ordinary representative democracy, you know, we vote for politicians and the winners are our politicians and the losers aren't. And then we have more elections for them again and we can throw the bums out or we can keep the bums right? I mean, that's all. If you're just committed to that, you ought to buy into Splitsville. However, there's a real worry about splitting up the nation, and that might be, you might call that the oppression worry. You might worry that certain people end up in a nation that's actually not just accidentally nasty to some people, but in some sense dedicated to the persecution of some people. I just think, you know, American history and world Western history is, especially in the 20th century, it is filled with these kinds of episodes. It's, it's not out of the ball game to think that a new nation might, for instance, find an internal enemy and really go to town on persecuting those internal enemies. I'm not going to go into more detail. I think you can all fill in your own, you know, ideological versions of this, but we see it happening in America right now. And we can imagine that one new nation might be really kind of tyrannical I mean, a just straightforward oppressive of an unfavored minority population. And so I thought, well, here I have to build in one more little thing. You're not only committed to representative democracy, but you're also committed to anti-oppression. And the way to deal with that, it seems to me, is to guarantee in the divorce decree that current residents of the United States can move to any of the new nations and probably for a couple of generations, maybe two, three. So it would be just a guaranteed right in the declaration that you would have both emigration rights, the rights to leave the place that is now a new nation and the right to get into any of the other nations that were previously part of the United States, right? So you can move. Just like we can move now, we basically have guaranteed immigration and immigration rights across state borders now. I mean, I could get up and move from Massachusetts to Oregon if I wanted. It wouldn't be a problem. I could move um, to Alabama if I wanted. I could just get in my car and move, right, to a new residency. So you got to have that guaranteed for a couple of generations. That's the anti-oppression thing. But that means, and here's where your question came in, that means you can do a lot of sort of foot voting. Right. That puts a certain kind of democratic pressure on the new nations to be half decent and have half decent constitutions. Because if they have junky constitutions, much of their population is going to leave. And much of the most productive members of their population is also going to leave. Now, it doesn't solve everything. Right. It's a, it's an old idea from the social contract tradition and the critique of the social contract tradition. It takes money and resources to move. Right. So that's absolutely true. But people are actually remarkably able to do that, even under horrible oppressive circumstances. So you look at the Great Migration North of African-Americans during the Jim Crow era from the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, and they really didn't have a lot of resources, but they were able to get out of an oppressive situation. So when I just say we have to have a guarantee that that can keep happening for a couple of generations, that there can be this kind of geographic sorting. But that means, to go back to the Hirschman thing, if you're in an organization that you don't like how things are going, you can raise your voice or you can exit. Yeah. But if you're a United States citizen, you can't exit. But if you do Splitsville, now you can exit. You can exit to places that are basically culturally, politically, and socially the same as the place you're living now because they're all the former United States, right? But you're moving to a new political organization or a new way, a new set of rules or a place that's more congenial to you. And that puts a lot of pressure, that actual threat of exit puts a lot of pressure on the organization to do better. So I actually think that the thing that I put in, the guaranteed emigration and immigration rights, in order to prevent internalized oppression, actually has a lot of pro democratic effects.
2: Yeah. And I like the way you uh, uh, made a point of showing a map where it was just red and blue states, but basically saying, hey, look, this isn't a binary kind of um, proposition. And we're not trying to create a kind of ditto head situation where those people who believe in these political values go in this nation and and these guys go over here, that obviates the whole idea of politics as social interaction and intersubjectivity, I guess. Is But but what I wanted to also bring up... If I so, could just so, follow up yeah, go, on, yeah, go ahead. Just on yeah. that,
1: that's a really important point. And I, I think often when I people hear this proposal, they think it's like, let's just all get together with our team. But politics is about stuff we disagree about, but we need to agree on. That's what politics is. It's when we disagree that we need politics. So we're never going to have a politics where we all agree. That's not politics. We don't do the stuff that we all agree about, right? Uh, we don't We don't bring that to the legislative session. The stuff we all agree about is just, we, we don't need politics for that because we don't need law. We don't need organization. We already do that stuff all together anyway. So that politics is about stuff we disagree about. So my proposal is not to be Ditto head, come by. all red people are all blue people. We're always going to have politics. We're always going to have disagreements as on blue team or red team or purple team or green polka dotted team. We're going to have disagreements. And politics is the way we do that without killing each other. War is the way we do that, killing each other. Politics is the way we do that, not killing each other. So my proposal is not to get rid of politics, but it's to make the machinery of politics work so that we can actually have democratic politics. So I just wanted to hammer that home that you brought up Keith. I really appreciate that because it is an important thing. This is not a proposal for creating um dittohead nations where we all think alike. It's rather a proposal for getting our political machinery to work so that we can do good democratic politics.
2: Yeah, nice. No, it's a good it's a good point and just one more way to break free of the the kind of binaries that we seem locked into the two party system being uh just just one of them and and you talk about this in terms of changing the rules that uh would allow for the possibility of um, multiple parties and, and and in terms of alternatives and so you you have this setup it's nice in in the book where as we talked about you diagnose the problem you prescribe a a remedy and then you also point out some alternative remedies and also show where their shortcomings uh lie and and so people have a can kind of look and choose and 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 put splitsville in perspective i think that's a it's a nice touch and also i think it's nice the way you as we talked a little bit about Hey, your first book and and your other work is very academic. It's thick and it's um uh, it requires a lot of you, you gotta <laughs> know you gotta have some background. So this latest book is is a genre change. It's an audience change, it's a purpose change. But I like the way you the way you did the structure, so you've got that diagnosis prescription alternatives to the prescription. But then within the chapters themselves, you've got your notes at the end but also then you've got a separate bibliography for each chapter. So it keeps it all kind of condensed and simplified within the chapters themselves. Anyways, I wanted to get to, after the alternatives, you bring up the preamble. Seems like it's key to the whole bigger problem, and that is this idea that The red guys have a certain set of values and the blue guys have a different set of values. And you've kind of marched us back to your spot, which is the Constitution, which is kind of the connecting thread through your work. And then you've put the preamble up there and then kind of laid this out and worked from it. What what were you on about there with that?
1: Well, I mean, the first uh, five chapters, more or less, of the book are all about one value, saving representative democracy, right? But that's not the only value we want out of politics. There's other stuff we want. We want the general welfare. We want justice. We want liberty, right? We want the common good. We want constitutionalism. We want the rule of law, right? We want these other things. And those might be in conflict or in tension with these other things. So I don't think you can think about an issue like this that's so big with just one value. That's what I am trying to say, like we're going to lose this one super duper important thing, representative democracy if we don't do something. But there's other things to think about. I mean, even when you mentioned violence before, like safety and security is a really important value uh, value. It might be the first demand of any government. I mean, this is Thomas Hobbes's point, right? <laughs> a government isn't working if people are getting slaughtered in the streets so. Existential security is not representative democracy. It's different value. Yeah. You have to weigh these different things together. Now, I don't think I can do the weighing myself and I don't think I ought to do the weighing myself because that's precisely what we do when we do democratic politics. We discuss these together. We argue about them. We try and get their priorities right. We try and figure out how they're going to work and their particulars. And then we take votes on them. We represent what's going to be. And then we allow it to be reopened in the future when we don't think we got it right. That's the basic process. Right. So we argue about how to balance these things. And it turns out. We do agree about a lot of stuff. I actually think we have a lot more agreement than we see. I think there's a lot of conflict entrepreneurs out there who want to gain and maintain power without majority support, who have an interest in thinking that you're existentially um, against these others, but they're just using that to gain and maintain power. We actually do agree about a lot, and I really do think we agree at the high level on on the basic values of American society. So what are the basic values of American society, I ask myself, and it's not hard to find. It's in the preamble to the Constitution. It's really one remarkable short paragraph that sums up almost all of the political values that really define and who we are as a nation. Now, it's not just us. Thankfully, constitutional democracy is spread across the world. Not quite as far as I'd want. It's having some problems in the world, but it's, you know, pretty successful in many places. And what are those values? The common good, the general welfare, democratic constitutionalism and constitutional rule of law itself, justice, equality, individual rights. It's all there. And we want that stuff to be passed on to the next generations. We want it to exist over time. And so what I try and do in that final um, big chapter is just say, here are the other things we need to think about beyond the representative democracy that I've been thinking about all along. Because for sure, the Constitution got a representative democracy up and running, but it also tried to realize these other ideals. And if you're trying to evaluate a proposal as radical and wacky as mine, we need to bring all of these values to bear. It may be I'm wrong about the trajectory of violence that I discussed earlier. If it, in fact, it's the case, that an attempt to split up the United States leads to slaughter in the streets, you know, game off. I would rather have loving people than have representative democracy. That's me, but maybe we should argue about that some more, you know, (laughs) but I don't think it does, but I think that these are, so what I'm trying to do is articulate the other values and how they would be at least start to be brought to bear on the idea of splitting up the United States, whether we do better by justice, by splitting up the United States, or whether we do worse on equality by splitting up the United States, or whether we would lose rights by splitting up the United States, or whether we would lose the rule of law. These are all important values and have to be brought into the mix. I mean, I'm a philosopher, after all, you don't get to just run an argument on one value. You have to think about the complex constellation of values that we want to realize in our politics.
2: Yeah, no, nice, uh, nice way to put it. So we start with diagnosis. We go to prescription. We look at alternatives, and then it's uh, the preamble as the political values. And yet I, we didn't talk too much about it, but you did go on uh, a bit about it. Was hey, you got some nice colored maps in there uh, for your uh, your various, starting with a red-blue binary, and and then working your way through to your preferred. Five nation breakup, and yeah. I think as you, as you say, GDP wise, it could work. It's a fairly fair uh, split, and security wise, a few there the nuclear weapon thing would be might be an issue. But anyways, uh, Chris, is there anything else you want to say about the book?
1: Well, I think something that I haven't really addressed is I really did want this to be a conversation opener for ordinary people. I want to get this into the broader political conversation i I this to me, this is not really an academic book. I haven't done anything philosophically like distinctive or really exciting here. Um, but I think I've got an idea that is actually a decent and a workable solution. So there are alternatives. There are alternatives. I just don't think that they're available to us. We can't actually have them. So, for instance, one great alternative is Lee Drutman's work, breaking the two-party doom loop, the case for multi-party democracy. I actually think multi-party democracy would be great, and I'd love if Lee Drutman designed our political institutions. That would be terrific. But politically, we can't get it passed because of these basic structural impediments. But we can use our... Unease and our conflict to just say, forget about it. Let's restart in different nations. So we can use the conflict to get the change. I think that's a democratic conversation opener. I don't think I've designed what these maps are. I think we ourselves have to figure out what these maps are. We have to fight about it. We have to conflict over it. We have to do politics over it. People are pretty good at doing politics over material resources. They they generally know when their ox is being gored and they don't allow their ox to be gored. So if, you know, if one of these new nations gets proposed and it, it has no transportation to the outside world, right, it's going to be like, yeah, I'm not going to accept that. Um, so I think that a lot of that horse trading stuff will work out pretty well. But that's what the divorce decree is. After that, then we have to design institutions. But I'm not a designer of institutions and I'm certainly not a div- designer of nations, I'm just another participant. So I tried to write this book in a way that non-academics could understand. I'm using academic literature, but I'm mostly just introducing it to people in a kind of simplified way. And it was really hard to write that way. I'm not a natural writer that way. And I got a lot of help from an amazing editor, Susan Watt, who I worked with for like three or four months, cutting out a lot of my academic, um, well, BS. And... Flotsam and jetsam, and you know, getting rid of that stuff and trying to make it more simple and straightforward. And I hope that people can read it. It's not a, it's not an easy read, and there are definitely parts that you can skip over, you can skip around and look what you want. Um, But I'm, I'm hoping that it's a kind of look. Here's where we Americans are. Here's where we are likely headed to a place we really don't want to go. But we need a pretty radical solution to avoid going down the route of either electoral authoritarianism or increased civil strife or no governability whatsoever, or worst of all, all three of those together. So my diagnosis is rather dire. And I, I this is at least one way of thinking about it. If there was a better way of doing it, I would really like a better way. This is a Second best option. I don't think it's the best option in the world. The best option would us for us to rewrite parts of our Constitution. That's not going to happen.
2: Yeah, right, right. The unamendable Constitution. You also uh, uh, have that good part early on where you say, I think maybe it um, must be chapter one, where you say, hey, well, if you think like a philosopher and you basically lay it out A through H or something and you in terms of all your premises – and uh, kind of as a, as a last question for you, do you have any input, like your first book, well-reviewed and well-received? Have you had any input from Splitsville?
1: I haven't gotten any formal input back from it, but there will be a panel on my book with some people in a couple of months, and I'm hoping that it gets some reviews. I didn't know how the book publishing world works outside of academic publishing before i did all of these so i haven't done all the steps i should have and i don't have a social media presence to go pick fights on um twitter like that would you know drive traffic to it so um things like the new books network are really crucial to try and get the ideas out there to a few more people you know i'd be happy if some people got some uptake on it um eventually these things are slow and i'm trying to keep my uh my spirit's up and I'm, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to um, some more formal challenges to it and things like that. And I would love to see some reviews of it, especially ones that say um, this is awful and this is the worst thing ever. And then they told me exactly why it's awful, because that's what us philosophers like. We actually like to be criticized because that's an engagement with the material. So, you know, if anybody wants to go at it,
2: I would love to have a good critical intervention with it. Those interested uh, in broadening uh, both their understanding of the issues at stake in the quest to revive and resuscitate representative government in the United States uh, will find Christopher Zern's Splitsville, USA, a democratic argument for breaking up the United States, just what they need. Published by Rutledge in 2023. Professor Christopher Zern, thank you again for sharing your insights and thoughts about so many things that matter to us today, most notably uh, your latest book as beacon uh, for the politically engaged, essentially a starting point for considering a more democratic version of the American experiment. Keith Kruger, thank you very much. It's very kind and really an enjoyable, great interview. Thank you.